Well, I am thankful for the opportunity to be able to uh, serve you this morning by bringing you the Word of God. And uh, if you want to, you can turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 John, is where we'll be this morning. The book of 1 John. Uh, almost at the very end of your New Testament, but there in the latter parts of your Bible. You know, it's built into human nature that no one likes to come clean. None of us like to admit our guilt, admit our sin, admit our wrongdoing. Uh, it's a part of our own self-preservation. In fact, you need only to look to a toddler with chocolate all over their face, in which you are trying to extract the truth about whether they truly did eat the chocolate chip cookie. And they shake their head and say no. And you know that there's undeniable proof right under a face. Or you can look to the courtrooms across America. To criminals who have committed atrocious crimes and yet they plead not guilty. They don't want to come clean and say that they have committed any wrongdoing. And really all crime mysteries, uh, murder mysteries really are built on this reality that We commit wrongdoing, and no one wants to fess up. No one wants to come clean and say what they did. Because what we do in darkness, we want to keep in darkness. What we do in our sin, we want it to stay there. And here in 1 John, he is going to address this very reality The book of 1 John was written by the Apostle John in the very end of the first century. And even though the author does not name himself, we know that it's the Apostle John from several factors. One is an external uh, testimony. Many uh, early church fathers wrote of the book that we call 1 John, and they attributed it to John the Apostle. But also, if you look, if you simply read the Gospel of John and you read the book of 1 John, you're going to see some amazing parallels, some amazing similarities, both in the vocabulary and in the issues that they address are remarkably similar. And so uh, tradition and uh, many other factors point to the fact that this was written by John the Apostle. And like I said, this was written in really the last quarter of the first century. We don't know the exact date, but it's clearly after 75 or so, pushing towards 100 AD. And at this point in the history of the world, Israel uh, had been greatly anticipating their Messiah, and he had come. He had come in the person of Jesus Christ after thousands of years of expectation. Jesus, the Son of God, walked through Israel proclaiming to be the Messiah. But his people rejected him, nailed him to the cross, and buried him, left him for dead. But as we know, he rose again three days later and commissioned his followers called apostles to go into all the world and to make disciples of the Messiah. And so when we get to 1 John, this has been happening for decades This message of the gospel has been spreading all throughout the known world and churches are being established. It was truly an exciting time to watch Jesus Christ establish his church in every culture that it penetrated. 
But this was not without opposition, as we know. The Roman government and the, and the pagan uh, world in which Christianity was penetrating did not like this exclusive religion known as Christianity, which they thought of as a sect of Judaism. They persecuted Christians. And by the time we get here to the last decades of the first century, most if not all the apostles have been martyred except for our author, the Apostle John. The church is moving, quickly moving into this time in which they don't no longer have the apostles around to dispense the doctrine. They're now going to need to rely upon the written word of God. But not only did they face opposition from the outside, but the church was facing opposition internally as well. False teachers were a dime a dozen, traveling between congregation to congregation, spreading error. And every congregation had to be on the watch for someone coming in and distorting the truth. And in fact, as you read the New Testament, right, it's remarkable how many letters mention this reality. That they need to be on the watch for false teachers, false doctrine, and the like. And 1 John is no different. Among the communities that John is writing to, false teachers had come in and begun to teach several wrong things. They had begun to teach that Jesus did not truly come in the flesh. They said that uh, you can claim belief in God and yet uh, live however you want to. They said that you could essentially disregard the church in relationships with other believers and still say that you love God. These were both doctrinal and moral attacks upon the truth of God and the people of God. Now, these false teachers had apparently left at this point. Uh, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 uh, give indication of that fact. But John had a lot of cleaning up to do. There was a lot of errors that were still there in a part of the church, and he needed to set some things straight. And that's what he begins to do uh, here in our passage this morning. So let me read the passage for you. We're going to start in verse 1. Our, our passage that we're going to cover is actually starting in verse 5. But to give us the, the full context of the chapter, I'm going to start in verse 1. And we'll be reading to chapter 2, verse 2. John writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let me tell you where we're going to be going this morning. We're going to, in verse 5, we're going to see the foundation that John lays. This verse is a foundational verse for the rest of the passage. And then in verses uh, 6 through chapter 2, verse 2, we're going to then see the implications of that foundation. So let's begin by looking at the foundation that he lays for us in verse 5. After introducing the book with a reminder of the gospel, John now gives a summary statement that serves as the bedrock for the following verses. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Simply put, John's foundation he is laying for his readers and for us is the character of God. He is setting straight who God is. And he fundamentally describes him as God is light. Now this message that uh, he is proclaiming has a divine origin. Notice, he says, this is the message we have heard from him. This him is Jesus Christ. This we is best understood as the apostles. John is one of the apostles. And as we see uh, the term we used in verses 1 through 4, talking about seeing, hearing, and touching Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth, that can only apply to the apostles. And so, this message, the apostles heard directly from Christ. And this is a lesson, a message that we must listen and heed for it has direct, it's a direct announcement from God. Now he, notice he says it in two forms, both positively and negatively. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And when John considered how he was going to address the issues that were, that were plaguing these communities that he was writing to, he knew that he first of all needed to lay the groundwork and the foundation, and that was make sure that they were clear on who God is. Because this is where we all need to begin. Many of you know the quote from the century, uh, pastor from the past century, A.W. Tozer, who says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is because God is the most important being in the universe. No one is greater, no one is more valuable, no one is more beautiful, and no one is more necessary to us. Our existence, our life, our eternity is entirely dependent on this God. And not only this, but how we live in the day-to-day is directly connected to how we view God. Many people today shy away from doctrine. They shy away from the word. It sounds too heady, sounds too academic, sounds too bookish. I just want to live for Jesus. 
Well, R.C. Sproul has well said that everyone's a theologian. You can't escape it. Everyone has a view about God. You either believe he exists or you believe he doesn't. You believe he's the ruler over all things or you believe he isn't. Or you believe he's ruler over part of your life or only uh, or all of your life. You have a view about God and it directly affects how you live in the day to day. There's no escaping it. And so we all have a personal doctrine about God. You have a doctrine about God right now. And although we may not think about this on a daily basis, the choices that we make are directly related to this doctrine of God. My youth pastor told me uh, when I was in high school, he had this phrase that stuck with me. He said, doing depends on doctrine. Doing depends on doctrine. In other words, how we live in the Christian life, how we live out our Christian lives is directly related to the doctrine and the truth that we know and that we believe. And John knows this. John knows this, which is why his first priority is to speak about the doctrine of God. And behold, this is a message that we need to hear and we need to take to heart about who God is. This description about God being God is light and in him there's no darkness at all is both simple and yet perplexing at times. It seems so basic that we can be tempted to skip over it and yet there is so much richness in this description. So let's break this down. What does it mean that God is light? I want to suggest for us this morning two main characteristics of God that are included in this description of God is light. The first is holiness and purity. Holiness and purity. Now, when you think about light, whether it comes from a light bulb or whether it's uh, coming from the sun, we think about brightness. We think about white, light, right? I didn't mean to rhyme with that, but it did. Blazing glory, right? This, this bright, shining light. And so when, when John says that God is light, he's saying that he is piercingly pure. He's, his character is untainted. His desires and ways are clean. His purposes have no trace of evil. He is the very definition of purity. He is the standard of white, if you were. And this was displayed, if you remember, on the night that Jesus was transfigured. If you remember, he went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And there he was transfigured before them. And note the words that are used to describe Jesus on that night. It says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Mark says, radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. This is a whiteness of the light of the glory of God that far surpasses uh, what we can achieve with bleach or any uh, sort of cleaning uh, agent today. This is a great uh, purity that describes the character of God. And John reiterates this by saying that in him there's no darkness at all. Just in case you thought that there might be some sort of trace, some sort of hidden corner in which there's darkness, John says no. There is absolute undiluted purity in the person of God. Now we need to think about this for a moment because you see God uh, is in charge of this planet. And he sees the wickedness of man and he uses sinners in his plans. And in fact, he's personally 
dealt with sin on the cross. So how is it that a perfectly holy God can deal with sin in this way, and yet for John to continue to say, he is light and in him is no darkness at all? Well, I think our own sun provides a good illustration of this. Just as the sun shines its beams upon everything upon this planet, and it itself is untouched, the sun does not change based upon what it shines upon. Its beams do not change. Only the things that it touches are changed. The sun can shine on beautiful buildings and cow manure, and both of, uh, and both of those do not affect the sun itself. And so it is with God. He is perfectly pure, and yet uh, as he deals with sinners here on this planet, he is untouched and untainted by that sin. Well, the, the second thing that I think John is implying when he talks about God being light is revelation and illumination. First was holiness and purity. The second is revelation and illumination. Light reveals and illumines, right? Just like when you walk into the living room at night and you flip on the light so that your shin doesn't find the coffee table, the light reveals objects in the room so that you know where they're at. In the same way, we can say that God is a revealing God. He himself has revealed himself. He is the light. He has pulled back the curtains and displayed himself. And the shining glory of God has radiated into this earth. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. God is a revealing God. He has spoken about who he is. We have that written down for us in the word of God. And so we can see even from this verse that he spoke to his prophets. They wrote it down. We have the word of God. But he also spoke through his son. He revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 8 verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light. You see, Jesus Christ reveals God to us. We cannot see God. We cannot uh, cannot put our eyes upon God. But Jesus Christ is the, the revelation of the Father and makes God known to us. So God is light. He's revealed himself to us. He's opened up the gates of heaven, as it were, and revealed who he is as the triune, three in one. So what does this mean for us? What is this message that John has? Say, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What is that? What's the significance for us? When we stand next to this God, this God of infinite holiness and purity, we're we're immediately blinded by the piercingness of his, of his glory and the brightness of who he is. And his light shines on us. And we who think we're, that we were okay and that we were, we're doing pretty good, we suddenly see in the, in the light of his glory, we see all of our imperfections. We see all of our sin. And with unmistakable clarity, we see that we're sinners to the core. 
Because you see, God's light isn't just this faint little glimmer that's kind of shining upon us. It is, it is a blazing spotlight that shines into every corner and nook and cranny of our lives. And when we read the word of God is when we allow that light to penetrate every corner. Now, the, God's light leaves us open and laid bare. We see that our hearts deep within us are corrupt. We're like the criminal running at night thinking that we're hidden from the cops and we're, we're hiding out until all of a sudden the spotlight from the helicopter above shines on you and uh, you're totally out in the open. There's no hiding here. The same is true when we come face to face with God. His light shows us our imperfections. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We cannot hide. God is light. And so we immediately realize that we are not light, that we are darkness. And even though we deserve to be cast into outer darkness forever because of our sin, God has chosen to share his light with us. This is the good news of the gospel. It's called salvation. And look at the way that Apostle Paul describes salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's light has shone into our darkness, revealing our sin and the glory of Christ. And so because we have been shown this grace, we should live consistently with this light. This is what John is going to build on. He says, God is light, therefore live according to the fact that God is light. You have nothing to hide. Don't live in darkness any longer. Don't shrink away from him. Go towards the God who is light. And so for the Remainder of the time that we have this morning, we're going to see three features of Christ's work. Three features of Christ's work on the cross that enable us to live clean before this holy God. How do we live clean? How do we come clean and live in God's light? We need to simply need to look to Christ. The first feature of Christ's work on the cross that we need to see is that the blood of Jesus heals our hypocrisy. The blood of Jesus heals our hypocrisy. And we see this in verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now the way that these, uh, John lays out this passage is that there is a claim that is made, uh, started by the words that say, If we say. And maybe you recognize that earlier when we read it. The if we say uh, formula is given three times in this passage. So this claim is made. And then there is a contradiction to that claim. Well, you say this, but I say this. And then there's a solution that is given. And so uh, each of these, our points this morning, will wrap around that claim, that contradiction, and the solution. In verse 6 here, we have the claim that if we walk in darkness, or walk in, we say that we're, uh, we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness. And John is saying this is a reality that cannot last. This is an inconsistency in our lives. This is hypocrisy. 
It's impossible to claim that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness. This is like oil and water. They can't mix. What does fellowship with God mean? It means that we have a relationship with God. It means that God has given us new life. And we are, as uh, Bernie reminded us earlier, we are adopted into the family of God. We are no longer enemies with God. We have new desires for him. To have no fellowship with God means that we're spiritually dead. To have fellowship with God means that we're spiritually alive. And John says, you can't claim to have fellowship with God if you're spiritually dead. Or if you're giving in to the desires of your flesh. If God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, then fellowship with him means that light will be evident in our lives as well. What is walking in darkness? We need to ask. We need to know what he's talking about. Well, walking in darkness simply means that we make choices and do actions that reflect an animosity and rejection of God rather than a love and submission to him. We walk in darkness when we sin, when the works of the flesh are evident. Just a sampling from the list of Paul. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, drunkenness. We walk in darkness when we don't love our spouse, our kids, our parents, or our brothers and sisters in Christ. We walk in darkness when we give in to immoral behaviors and addictions that destroy ourselves and destroy our relationships. Folks, John makes it clear that when we allow these sinful behaviors to grow and to fester in our lives, while continuing to claim the name of Christ... We are lying to ourselves. He says, if you make this claim, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're failing to put into practice what we know is true about God. We are failing to practice the truth. The truth that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So what are we to do with this? Well, number one, we need to be honest with ourselves. Where are the areas of darkness in our lives? Where are you allowing the shadow of darkness to continue to linger in your lives? Because if we truly know the God of light who has no darkness, we must with equal passion look to move all darkness out of our lives as well. Are you cherishing some sins in your life? That are more characteristic with darkness, darkness than with light. Where are you following the desires of the evil one rather than the desires of the God of light? But as we see that hypocrisy in our lives, we then need to look to John's solution in verse 7. And he points us to Jesus. He says, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Our call is to go into the light. We see these corners of darkness. We see these pieces of hypocrisy in our lives that we're not willing to submit to Christ, that we're not willing to repent of. And John says, take it and walk into the spotlight, my friend. He says, take it out there and walk in the light. Let it be revealed by the piercingness of God's glory, by the truth of his word. Now you might say, 
That sounds scary. If I stand out there in the light with all of my imperfections and my sin, I'm going to be all alone. I'm going to be there by myself and it's going to be shameful and humiliating. Or maybe you're thinking, if I come clean like that, what's God going to think of me? Is God really going to accept me? Well, John anticipates these fears and he points us to Christ. He says, if we come into the light, we don't have to worry about being alone. Because notice, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see, stepping out into the light and being honest about your shortcomings, your weakness, and your sin gains you friends, not loses them. It gains you brothers and sisters in Christ who are equally standing in the light, who are equally honest about their sin, equally honest about their shortcomings. And we have fellowship with one another. This word for fellowship is the word for for sharing. And in the church, there should be a deep sharing of life, a deep sharing of love and of relationship. These are relationships that go deeper than anywhere else because we are united by our love for God. We're united by the spirit of the living God who's inside of us. There's a unique fellowship that's here. And John says, it's going to be there if we walk in the light. But if we're a community of people who uh, keep our, our, our flaws hidden and, and, and we're not going to bring our, our pieces of darkness into the light, then we're going to be simply putting on a face for everyone. We're going to be showing up here and just saying everything's nice and everything's good. And we're not going to be able to be honest. We're not going to have a true sharing of life with one another. We want this fellowship. There's got to be an honesty and we've got to bring our lives out into the light of God's word and allow ourselves to be exposed. But not only that, we come out into the light and we are cleansed. John says that we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We don't have to worry about coming there and standing and feeling ashamed before God because he has done everything needed to make sure that we stand pure and clean before him. Brothers and sisters, let that warm your heart and draw you to your God this morning. Walk into his light. Allow his word to penetrate into your life. Know that he sees everything in your life and we need to simply confess your sins and know that you will find a cleansing at the cross of Christ. It's by his blood, John says. Uh, Imagery that that we pick up in many of the songs that we sing. Referencing the bleeding of Christ upon the cross. From the nails in his hands and his feet to the crown of thorns shoved up on his head. And under the, you know that under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the the bulls and goats and lambs were, were slaughtered to deal with sin. But those couldn't actually take away sin. They couldn't actually cleanse. They could only cover it for a time. And as the book of Hebrews tells us, the blood of Jesus completely cleanses us once and for all. His blood represents his death, a death that you and I each deserved. And so, as we step into the light, declaring that we indeed are sinners who are flawed, we are also declaring the power of the blood of Christ To cleanse us from every single sin. To cleanse our hearts at the deepest level. 
So friends, where is that hypocrisy in your life? Where are you claiming fellowship with God and yet walking in darkness? The word of God calls you this morning to step into the light and find the cleansing of the blood of Christ. So the first feature of Christ's work on the cross that enables us to live clean before a holy God is that the blood of Jesus heals our hypocrisy. The second feature of Christ's work on the cross that we need to see from this passage that helps us live clean before God is that the forgiveness of Jesus cleanses our conscience. The forgiveness of Jesus cleanses our conscience. Look with me at verse 8. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John here has turned to another claim his readers and most likely the false teachers were making, and that is that they uh, have no sin. They denied their sin nature. Now, this next, the next claim is going to be about committing sin, actual acts of sin. But this one, you notice that, that sin is singular. And he, he's talking about the, the sin principle that lies within each one of us. And unfortunately, this view is prevalent everywhere we look today. Right? People don't want to admit the fact that they were born sinners. The secular viewpoint believes that people are born innocent and it's their environment that conditions them to do evil. Because evolution doesn't uh, assign an inherent evil to, to people. And unfortunately, an idea that, that uh, people are born good has also been in the church for a while. Some of you might know the name Pelagius, a heretic from long ago, who taught that uh, mankind was born good and only turned evil after doing bad things. And for as much as we want to believe in the good of humanity, uh, we simply cannot accept that position because the Bible, God calls mankind other things besides good. Let's look at this list. He says that man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick in Jeremiah seventeen nine. He says that uh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Dead. Not alive. He says that we love sin. John 3.19. And that we're slaves to sin. In John 8.34. He says that mankind. Uh, says no one is righteous. Romans 3.10. No one seeks for God. Romans 3.11. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3.12. You see, these passages give a pretty clear understanding that of what the condition of our hearts are apart from the saving grace of God. And so for anyone to claim, as, as John is bringing out here, to claim that there, we have no sin, that we were born without sin, he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You say you have no sin, well I can tell you, you don't know the God of light. I can tell you the truth about who God is hasn't penetrated your life. Because if, if the God of light had penetrated your life, you would, you would know that you're a sinner. You would know his truth that you are not righteous in his sight. And thus you need the salvation of God. And so this morning, 
We can't say that we don't have sin. We must admit that we do. And so what do we do when we see that sin? When we have that guilt upon our conscience, John gives us a solution in verse 9. Look at it. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says that rather than regular denial, there should be regular confession of our sin. And this regular admission and admitting of our guilt comes through this confession. Because it's only through this confession that we receive forgiveness. Now, some of you may be thinking, why do I need to ask for forgiveness on a daily basis, on a regular basis, if all of my sins have been taken care of once and for all at the cross of Christ? Didn't he forgive all of my sin at the cross? Well, the answer to that question is yes, he did handle it all. He took the full uh, weight of your sin at the cross. But this question mixes two different uh, kinds of forgiveness, both stemming from the work of Christ on the cross. But you see, when we come to faith in Christ, we repented for the first time, we, we confessed our sin before God, and we placed our faith in Christ It's at that moment that we received, yes, a forgiveness for all the sin that we've committed. And we are declared righteous before God. That is called our justification. It's a one-time act, a declaration by God, in which he says, you are righteous in my eyes. And our justification cannot be added to. And it cannot be subtracted from. Everything, everything that we do in our daily lives does not affect our standing before God, right? That is a bedrock truth of the gospel. It can't be changed. And so that, that reality we'll call this morning positional forgiveness. In other words, our position before God, we have been forgiven of all things. Our relationship is secure. But with that as our foundation, we still sin. Right? There's still sin within us. And we, and we still make choices that displease God. And that puts a rift in the relationship. Just like when you offend somebody in your family, there's now a rift in that relationship Something needs to be done to mend that relationship. And that's where confession of sin and forgiveness come in. We'll call this relational forgiveness. So we have uh, positional forgiveness before God. Yes, untouched, unmoved, unchanged. But we also live out our daily life in which we still sin. And we have this, we need this relational forgiveness to repair the relationship. The illustration for, for me that I always go back to to discern the difference is to think about the relationship I had with my father. I knew that he loved me. No matter what, no matter what I did, no matter how far off I went, he loved me and I was his son. Nothing was ever going to change that. Nothing would change his love for me. And yet, I would offend him. I would sin against him. I would do things that displeased him. And I needed to go back to him and ask for forgiveness and have that relationship restored and repaired. It didn't affect the fact that I was, I was a son. I was always going to be a son, and his love for me was always going to be there for that. But the ongoing daily realities of our relationship can be affected by sin, and that's where confession and repentance come in. And the same is true with God. So how do we know that if we confess our sin, he's going to forgive us? Well, John points us back to the character of God again. He says that he is faithful and righteous, or faithful and just. He has made a promise in the gospel that he will forgive us of our sins. 
And friends, when every time we go and we confess to God and we lay bare our sin, we rest upon that promise. And we go to him and say, God, you're faithful. I know you're not going to go back on your word. Thank you. And we know that we're going to receive the forgiveness that he's promised. Because if he were not to forgive, it would mean that he would be unfaithful and he would be unjust. Because the payment has already been paid in Jesus Christ. In other words, every time we come to God to confess our sins, we are banking on the character of God. We're banking on who he is. And we can walk away knowing that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness, he says. Not most unrighteousness, not some of our unrighteousness, but all. Friends, do you believe that your sin is forgiven in its entirety? Or do you confess your sins before God and walk away still feeling guilty, thinking that you need to do something to prove to God that you're really sorry? Thinking that then after you prove that you're really sorry, then he'll forgive you some more and totally wipe it away. Friends, that undermines this reality of the gospel. That is a form of of penance that we're trying to do. We're trying to earn God's favor back by trying to be more sorry or trying to go do some religious or righteous thing. Think that going to church will then clear our record or thinking that then pulling out our Bible or praying more is going to make God more happy towards us. And that is a false gospel. Because he says that the way to find forgiveness is, is simply through confession. Honest, open confession, admittance of our guilt before a holy God. And we receive forgiveness of all our unrighteousness. And so I ask you, are you carrying a guilty conscience this morning? Is your sin weighing you down? That sin that you know is there that maybe nobody else sees? My friends, Jesus is calling you to come clean this morning. He's calling you to step out into his light. To step step out into the light and to receive the healing and the forgiveness that is found only in him. Come into the light. Go to Jesus. Your Savior is waiting to forgive you. Run to him. He died to make it possible. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And find that forgiveness and that freedom of being in right relationship with your God. Well, the third and final feature of Christ's work on the cross that we're going to see this morning is the righteousness of Jesus repairs our record. The righteousness of Jesus repairs our record. And we see this in verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 10, running through chapter 2, verse 2. But just look at verse 10 with me. He says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, another claim that was made by the people in the communities he's writing to. And they were denying of having done any sinful actions. They're saying, yeah, we, we don't really sin. We haven't sinned. Now, it's kind of hard to believe that someone today would actually say that they've never done anything wrong, right? You can pretty much stop anybody on the street and say, have you ever told a lie? And is that wrong? And they'll probably say, yeah, and give some uh, credence to that fact. But those Who do deny it, John says, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. Like the last last claim, this goes directly against the character of God. Because God has said that no one is good, no one is righteous. All have sinned. 
Therefore, if you say the word of God is wrong, then you make God a liar. And his word is not in us. Now, the funny thing is that those who are denying that they have sin and John here basically have the same goal. They both want this idea of no sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's saying, listen, the, the desire that they're hoping for, which is to have a clean record in which there's no sin, is a great, uh, a great desire, a great goal. I have that goal for you, that you wouldn't sin. But it's where they go to, to get that goal that sets the two apart. These sin deniers wanted to trust in their own righteousness. They wanted to trust in their own good record that they have done before God. But John wants us and his readers to trust in the righteousness of God. A righteousness, a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness we don't have in and of ourselves. Look at the rest of of verse 1 there. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I love how he starts out the chapter saying, if, if, if uh, my goal is that you may not sin. And we go, well, John, I'm sorry to break it to you, but uh, um, I sin quite a bit. And, uh, and I don't know how well that goal is going to be reached. You know, I sin all the time. And it's so great to then see the next phrase. He says, but if anyone does sin. And we go, ooh, that's me. That's me. Um, and, and we find this relief that he, uh, he understands our weakness. He understands our frailty. The, the standard is not unattainable. He's, shown us, he's showing us the path of life. Now, if we look at our own track record, if we look back over our lives, we see a, a track record that is uh, strewn with sin. It's littering the trail ever since we were young. After one selfish act after another, And therefore, if we are going to be in relationship with the Holy God, if we are going to walk in the light as he is in the light, we need a new track record. We need a new new record attributed to us. And this is where Jesus comes in. He stands in our place and he advocates for us. Such a beautiful, wonderful picture of the gospel here. It's, It's the picture of a courtroom with God the Father as the judge. And, and, and we are the accused, uh, standing there in our guilt. Again, in the blazing glory of his light, we see our sin, we see our flaws, we see our imperfections, and we recognize that we are deserving of hell for this sin. And yet Jesus is our defense. And he's standing there. He's our advocate. And he says, this one's with me. Take my record in his place. And the judge says, no, I can't let him go off free. There's, there's, there were sins committed. I, bet I, need to, I need those sins need to be paid for. And Jesus says, I did that. And he hands up the record and shows that he paid for every one of our sins. You see, God doesn't just brush sin aside. If he could just brush sin aside, the cross was unnecessary. Jesus had, uh, God had to deal with sin directly, and he chose to do it on the person of his son, Jesus Christ who is described here as the righteous. A title that really can apply to no one else. Jesus Christ is the only righteous one, the only one who has perfect righteousness. And thus, he is the perfect advocate for us. 
And not only did his record replace our record, but verse 2 says that he is our propitiation. Verse 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this is a big word, but it simply means the wrath-bearing sacrifice. To say that Jesus is the propitiation, it means that we're saying he is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. He bore the wrath of Almighty God and was slaughtered on our behalf. You could think of, if you could think of the wrath of God like a semi-truck going 70 miles an hour down the freeway. And, and the semi-truck driver is directly uh, eyeing you, looking to crush you. And Jesus Christ stands right in front, takes the blow so that you don't have to. It's that crushing reality in which, in which the wrath of God was standing over each one of our heads. Apart from Christ, God's wrath remains on us, John 3 says. And if we don't put our faith in Christ, then that wrath comes and crushes us and punishes us for all of eternity. But see, the beauty of the gospel is that God, who is bringing the wrath, provided his own son to take our place, to take the full brunt of the wrath. God handed the cup of wrath to Jesus and he drank it to the dregs. There's not one piece of wrath left for those of us who believe. Paul says in Romans 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It has all been absorbed, all been taken by Christ. Friends, let your heart rejoice in the gospel this morning. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. Amen? He gave us his record of righteousness as we gave our record of sin. And yet, I think many times we act as if he hasn't really done this. We sin and we think we need to go get cleaned up before we can go to God. This is some of what I was talking about earlier. We think we need to feel more sorry or we need to do more spiritual things before God will forgive us and God will accept us. But you see, from this passage, it's at the very moment of sin that we can glorify Christ in our repentance and come to God to get cleaned up. There's a door that's labeled sinner. And inside is forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Pure grace, unearned, undeserved. And your sin... It causes you to shrink away from God and causes you to uh, figuratively do what our first parents did and cover yourself with fig leaves, trying to make yourself look better than you really are. That sin is the very thing that qualifies you to walk through that door and find that forgiveness. Don't let your sin pull you away from God. Don't let your sin cause you to shrink away from God. It's natural because we're sinners in the light of a holy God. But the gospel reinforms it and calls us to walk through that door. If you are here this morning and you've never seen that great gift of the gospel, you've never submitted your life to Christ, Jesus has never been good news to you, then I invite you to submit to him right now. Call out for mercy right where you're at. 
He will forgive. There's a door marked sinner. He's calling you to walk to it. Come out into the light. Confess your sin before him. Don't hold back. He knows every dark corner of your life. He knows you're rotten. And he's provided a way for you to be cleaned. Don't turn away from the only hope you have for forgiveness and for holiness. Because if you were to die today, then you would be serving your sentence in hell that you deserve for the atrocities of your sin that you've committed against God. In Christ, there is freedom, there is peace, there is forgiveness. Friends, as we look at this passage, we recognize that we have every reason in the world to come clean. To live in the freedom, the liberty of being followers of the light. To be sons and daughters of the light. And I pray that we can be a community of people who live in the light. We don't put a mask on to cover our flaws, to cover our darkness, but we are open. We confess our sin to God and to one another. We're not afraid of sin. It's not hush-hush. We bring it out into the light and we confess it for what it is. And we bring it to the cross of Christ because only there the power of God can forgive and to cleanse and to restore us. Let us face sin head on as we drag it into the light and see it destroyed by our Savior. Let's close in prayer. O God who is light, piercingly beautiful and radiantly holy, we all realize our desperate plight apart from you. Sin is all too common in our daily life. While we're on this planet, we do not yet have completely transformed hearts. The sin nature still clings to us and we still make choices that displease you. But God, we thank you for the gospel this morning. We thank you that you have provided hope and a way for us to be cleansed. I pray this morning, oh God, that everyone here would see in a, a new way the work of Jesus on the cross, that they would run to Christ to be cleansed, to be forgiven, and to be set free from their sin. We thank you for all that you've done. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, you are dismissed.